0: This is the Raising Athletes podcast, season two, episode twenty-four, with Dan Mavrides. Tokyo Olympics, twenty twenty, or bust. Hi. This is I'm. Bleh. <laughs> <laughs> Once you know it's for real, I know <laughs> you're like. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Let's stop. Hi, I'm Kirsten Jones. And I'm Susie Walton. And this is our podcast. Hashtag Raising Athletes with Kirsten and Susie. Our passion is supporting parents in raising not only strong athletes, but extraordinary people. Join us each week as we tackle all topics youth sports, including everything from early specialization and overuse injuries, to helping our kids feel empowered and learn how to advocate for themselves, not only in the classroom and on the court, but at dinner tables and in their communities. We'll be talking to coaches, athletes, parents, and anyone else who will speak to us (laughs) about their experiences with youth sports and their paths to success. And even more importantly, their failures. Yes, we're gonna get into the gritty details of what went wrong so that we can all learn from it. Teach our kids and ourselves how to do better next time. Because in the words of Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. So welcome to Raising Athletes, because we love to win too. Let's do this. In this week's episode of the Raising Athletes podcast, I caught up with Dan Mavridis, who is a top-ranked FIBA three-on-three professional basketball player. And guess what? An Olympic hopeful. Yes, a new sport has been created for the 2020 Olympics, and that is three-on-three basketball. And he and three of his Princeton College teammates are all working to qualify for that. I caught up with him in between qualifying events and we chatted about his journey both on and off the court and the non-linear path that it's taken. I think what I admired most was hearing his willingness to delay gratification. Listen to him talk about his story about getting to the top of the high school team and then getting to the top of the when he went to a post grad year and and then at college every single level he had to earn his way onto the court. Um, that the, the fact that he stuck with it over time has served him really well because he took a few years off. And then this opportunity came, came to him um, to, again, at age 30, try to qualify for the Olympics. And he said, why not go for this? So now in, the, in better shape, he says, mentally more tough and ready to take on his next challenge. Have a listen and listen, uh, listen to him talk about the joys and the passions um, of going after something you really truly believe in. Enjoy. Hello and welcome back. Today on Raising Athletes, we're excited to have Dan Mavredes on as our guest. But before I jump in and introduce him, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I'm Kirsten Jones, a peak performance and sports parenting coach. My passion is helping others align their their vision with their mission and their values to get what they want in life. As a former division one volleyball athlete and a 14 year Nike executive, I've always loved understanding the power of what makes peak performance possible. As a mother of three and someone who is currently in the middle of supporting my oldest son's dream to play sports in college, Susie Walton and I have created this podcast to help others who are trying to raise not only strong athletes, but more importantly, good people. And today, unfortunately, Susie can't be with us, so I'm going solo, but I'm so excited to have you on, Dan, and talk about something I think probably most of our audience doesn't even know is coming, which is three-on-three basketball in the Tokyo Olympics, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for having me, Kirsten. It's mm-hmm. Pleasure, pleasure to be on the Raising Athletes podcast. Uh, I know it's a big deal, and I and I feel thankful to be able to chat um, with you today. And yeah, yeah. Three X three is the new is the new game that I'm playing um, at a high level. To give you some background about it, yeah. it kind of started. It first really appeared in about 2010 at the Youth Olympics, um, and It's been gaining more pace throughout the world over the last decade or so, Um, leading up to the USA Basketball, getting involved in about uh, a few years after, early 2010s, and then uh, flashing back to 2017 in the summer, it was actually named to be an Olympic sport. So that's what's really um, taken off the, the growth and exposure of the game from that point on over the last two years now. So it will debut in Tokyo at the next Summer Olympics in 2020. And, you know, it's it's pretty wild that you're going to have um, an addition to one of the three major, you know, uh, sports in the U.S. or even global. You know, you have soccer or football and, you know, outside the U.S. You know, you have American football, you have baseball. And so basketball is now going to have two events, which is just a wild thing. You'll have the five-on-five event with the NBA guys and a lot of, you know, characters you're used to seeing. Um, internationally, and then you 're going to have uh, this new street ball fast paced very physical version um, of three on three very it's pretty cool. exciting
0: yeah, well, I want to get more into that, but first of i 'd love to give our listeners context around who you are and how you got to this because you're no, you 're not fresh out of college right you 're in
1: no no i 'm a seasoned bird as you say
0: <laughs> <laughs> so this is what 's exciting is I think a lot of kids feel like you know, I'm I'm going to play sports and maybe if I'm lucky, I'll play in high school. And if I'm really super lucky, I'll get to play in college. But you right. had quite a an, a an original path, one that isn't very well known. So can we dive a little bit into your background yeah. first? Um,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Going back, you know, I'm mainly California raised, was born in Boston, but uh, spent most of my time in LA and San Francisco. Uh, and then I ended up going to Princeton in New Jersey. Uh, for college. I majored in economics there and played, you know, my whole basketball career there. Um, and how and did then... you get to
0: Princeton? Via... Yeah,
1: so Princeton, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I had a unique path getting to college as well, too, <laughs> backing up even further. So I went to high school in San Mateo, um, Sarah High School, home of a couple oh, yeah. a couple athletes you'd recognize, Tom Brady being one, Barry Bonds. Yeah. And myself, I'll throw in there. You know, we're like the little trio. Really like baseball, basketball, football. Sweet. Except to our superstars and, and I'm nobody. But um, yeah, so I spent four years in high school there at Sarah. And, you know, I graduated like many, like many you know, student athletes. Uh, the, the college decision is, is a tough dynamic to figure out because you want to play at the highest sport level, athletic level you can, and you want to get the best education possible. Um, some students try to use one to lever up the other and vice versa, but it's, it's a different dynamic and like most, like most college uh, high school athletes, when I was coming up to graduating, uh, I just didn't have the right situation that I felt was a good fit for me. I had schools interested me on the basketball side, but not much at the division one level. I felt like I was that caliber of player. And academically, I had some great academic schools, but maybe the basketball wasn't there, or vice versa. The, the D1 schools that liked me, I wasn't as sold on the academics at those institutions, and so you're kind of faced the dilemma, right? It's like, well, do I hang them up and go to the best academic school? Do I do I uh, focus on sports and you know and, and kind of try that route and shoot professional thing? There's a lot of risks, you know, to that side, so. Um, a frequent, you know, a lot of kids from my school chose the junior college route for some for some more experience and more exposure to get to the college level, and it's a great route. It's, uh, you know, it gives you another chance to put on, you know, maybe some more pounds or or hone your skills and and, and really focus on that goal. But I went and did a postgraduate year, um, oh, so a PG tell- year, as they hear, and this was yeah. this was how we met as well too. Yeah, right? <laughs> tell us a little bit about that for the listeners. Yeah, who have. exactly. So a postgrad exactly. year. Uh, Will sound foreign to some, but it's essentially like a fifth year of high school. Uh, you've graduated from high school already, so you don't have any requirements for college. But it's like a it's like a year of junior college that doesn't take up any eligibility. So I think it's most prevalent on the, in the Northeast. You know, growing up in LA and in San Francisco, I hadn't been aware of it. It was my father who's from the East Coast, and uh, I had spoken to other friends that. That let us in on it, but you know it's a very popular program for athletes um, in general. I would say, I, so I ended up going to Phillips Exeter Academy, which is you know a really top-ranked prep school um, academically, you know, boarding school throughout the country. And uh, but there, but there's a bunch of them, and, and you know the process as as CJ's gone through and, and interviewed at, at a bunch of them. They they essentially allow this fifth year to go in, and um, you have a pretty rigorous academic schedule, but you have a chance as well to get more college recruitment. And then the, the big point being for athletes, it doesn't take up a year of eligibility. So you can still go and play four years uh, of college sports, which is, which is a pretty great thing. So I went in there um, from day one. It was treated like a college type of training. Um, and throughout the year, yeah, I put on 10 pounds of muscle. My body developed, my skill sets um, developed, and I got access to you know, a whole bunch of different colleges that didn't have exposure to. It. it ended up being a lot of Northeast schools, but it was the Ivy Leagues, the Patriot Leagues, uh, the NESCAT schools, Amherst and, and Williams and, and those types of... Uh, and where, did, where did they
0: see you play? Were you playing in tournaments
1: or how does that work for... Yeah, while you're in school, you have a, it's like a prep school league. And so you play against other boarding and prep schools and they all... Um, they all have a, a postgraduate program. Some are, there, there are some schools that are purely postgrads. I'm um, pretty sure Bridgeton is, is a school that only accepts postgraduates. Um, and other schools, you know, have this fifth year program. So to give some perspective on the size, I'd say, say Exeter had about a thousand students when I was there. There was about 30 to 40 postgraduates. Across all sports. Attached, kind of attached to the senior class. I would say the vast majority um, were athletes, yeah.
0: But other sports like hockey, other and, sports
1: as well. Yeah, yeah, hockey probably took up the most spots. There was football, baseball, basketball. Um, I'm pretty sure there was a soccer postgraduate. So yeah, it would kind of spread, spread the gamut. We had, you know, men and women, and um, yeah, everyone kind of there. That that group of 40 kids, you kind of joined the senior class. But you know, as, as saying, well, you you're there for one reason. You know, you're, you're kind of doing another year of high school here. For one reason, one reason. And that's to reach your, your optimal school situation, you know, with, with the basketball and, and academics aligned.
0: So, what is the downside, or did you see one of doing a post grad year <laughs> when all of your friends were headed off to college or? You right,
1: have- right. That's the tough thing, you know. You you are still in high school, so the freedoms that come along with going to college were, were not really there. You know, frankly, I went to you know school that was a boarding school, so I was living on campus now. So I actually took a lot of my freedoms away. You know, I didn't have a car. Mm -hmm. I had a curfew. I wasn't really free to go and come as I pleased. And so you actually, I actually lost a little bit of that independence from my senior year, I would say living at home. Um, But, you know, it's kind of everything. And that was difficult, right? As you mentioned, that was very difficult. The vast majority of my friends went to college, you know, they were partying, enjoying their lives, getting new experiences and I remember having 11 p.m. curfew, you know, and some nights got me pretty upset, you know, yeah. um, you know, to say I was crying and, you know, and, and not sure of my decision and, you know, upset about it all was was definitely a, a part of the process. But I quickly saw what a special place Exeter was and, and how unique this situation was. And, my, you know, my teammates and I, specifically the postgrads, kind of just banded together And realized, look, we're here for one reason. We all sacrificed going to college and doing for one reason. And so we worked really, really hard. You know, Mm -hmm. it was one of the, it was really a change in my dynamic going from um, as close as possible to like a professional type of workout setting where I was really working on my own individual skills to get better across, you know, all facets Mm -hmm. of basketball.
0: And then once you got to Princeton, what, what, how did, how did,
1: how was that transition? Yeah, yeah, so so I applied to schools again just the same way I did out of high school. I took the SAT and the ACT several more times. You know, some schools were telling me to bump up my scores, so you know, I think I took the SAT I don't know, 5 times, 4 times. I might have taken the SAT twos, maybe 7 or 8 of those. I took the ACT one, so uh <laughs> no stranger to the standardized test. And sometimes I got better and sometimes not, but it was, you know, it was all for that one goal of, 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 getting, you know, to the college you wanted. So the recruitment came a lot, you know, I ended up getting a lot more division one interest after this year, which worked out very well. We had a good team. I had a good season and, you know, I became more of a mature player. Uh, and then academically, you know, depending on the type of prep school, Exeter is really well established, uh, academically. And so being able to handle the workload there, you know, just further showed some of these colleges that Ivy league that might've been borderline. Uh, Uh, for me, that that I could handle that workload. So they brought me in. So I eventually chose Princeton over several other schools. And um, yeah, I matriculated there the next year to just Mm -hmm. continue on and and do my four years of college.
0: And then college experience was what you had hoped it would be and playing and developing. It was,
1: it was. Not at first. You know, one, one kind of similarity I've seen, I think most people could relate to this is, yeah, it's never really what you seem in terms of, I went in thinking I had an extra year of high school and I was bigger than most players and more physical. And I really kind of expected to to be a contributor right off the bat. And I think most high school players do. And that's kind of similar throughout all different chapters of your life. When you go from, you kind of evolve and you go from being the big fish in one pond to being the smaller fish in the next pond and the bigger pond. And so coming in as a freshman is tough for, for most, uh, for most guys. I mean, maybe Zion Williamson had a, Slightly yeah. different uh, <laughs> you know, experience than me. But, you know, that my first time I expected to be a contributor off the bat and I was fighting to stay on the team. You know, we had maybe 17, 18 guys. Not everyone was traveling at the time. Practice was very intense. And, you know, most importantly, we had a new coach take over that didn't, that didn't recruit me. Mm. So I wasn't his guy per se. So I had to really prove myself. And most of my freshman year, the vast, vast majority was spent riding the bench. Um, I, I was a practice player playing, you know, as, uh, playing as the other team's offense in practice to get our first squad ready for the game. And that was difficult. You know, I, I thought after taking a year and my experience that I would, would have a smoother time, but, you know, it didn't deter me. It was it was learning the process and figuring out what the coaches wanted. And Princeton had a pretty intense book of plays and, and sticking to the script. And there was just a degree of uh, focus and uh, focus there was, was really a big one that that I wasn't per- that it was ready for yet and needed to work on. So uh, I spent all my sophomore summer working my butt off, came back and again, had a fight, you know, mm. had a really, really fight for my role. Uh, it turned out, you know, six, seven games into my sophomore season, I finally got a starting role and, mm. and an opportunity and, 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 and took it with everything I had and then ended up starting the the, the last 90 games of my career pretty much from that. From that game on, I, I never missed another game. Not starting, so um, yeah, that was a high level transition. I,
0: I love I love that discussion because I think what a lot of our we talk about a lot on this podcast, which is. We have, we human beings have this expectation that I'm going to make a decision and then everything's going to fall into place. And when it doesn't, we get very (laughs) frustrated. We get very put out that it's not going according to what our plan was, but what you learned in that, you know, two years, really two and a half years before you really earned your spot, I would dare say, let's skip ahead now to, you took what, five, seven years off of basketball after you graduated?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So played after, after, after I played at Princeton, uh, I went and played a couple of years professionally in Europe. And oh, I okay. In, yeah. I played in the top divisions of Greece and Italy. So that's kind of like their version of, of the NBA out there. Every country has its own uh, league. They have several divisions, uh, which is slightly different than, than the NBA. The NBA is comparable to maybe the G league, which is kind of like their developmental league. Yep. Um, so yeah. And every country has, you know, different, regulations and laws as to how many foreigners can play in their league versus how many domestic players and um, the rule sets although pretty standard across the gameplay is very different. the speed mm-hmm. of pace, the, you know the, the style of play is just, it's just very different. You know from Greece to Italy to Spain to you know, Israel to Russia it's just different types of contrasting you know, thoughts around school basketball. So that again was another major adjustment. I went into a team in Greece where the, the, coach, the head coach spoke zero English. I, being half Greek, uh, was not trained well enough, you know, at a young age and spoke zero Greek. So, you know, every time I turned over the ball, he would just turn and he would just scream at me, and there'd be veins popping out of his head, yelling in <laughs> Greek. You know, that, that saying, it's as foreign as Greek, it truly. I had no idea what he was saying, but I would just make out the words like Princeton here and there. In sense, he was just yelling at me like, You went to Princeton. You shouldn't turn over the ball. You have good basketball fundamentals. I was like, okay, (laughs) this is crazy. But anyways, yeah, another adjustment to a different type of play, a different team. A lot of my teammates didn't speak English and and, and learning how they wanted you to play. I think, you know, getting back to the point, yeah, that adjusting period is so challenging. Um, But it's just important to have a very true sense of yourself, your strengths and your weaknesses. And most importantly, understand what the larger goals are of the team And the coach, Mm -hmm. you know, the coach arguably wants to win more than anyone. He's kind of who's the the person whose job is most at risk. You know, he's the one who's making a living. At least, you know, you talk about college, high school level, the only one making a living off of, you know, your wins and losses. And so one big factor for me in college, I realized was you need to start changing your mind to saying, not, am I doing what I think is best? Am I doing what the coach thinks is best? Mm. And whether that aligns with your philosophy or not doesn't really matter when it's more of a dictatorship. Uh, you you kind of need to fall in line with what he thinks is best for the team and make yourself valuable that way to, to start earning some playing time. What, what uh, team did you play on in Greece? In Greece, I played for a team called Aris. A-R-I-S. Aris, okay. it was in Thessaloniki, oh. in northern Greece. It has like a, over a million people there. It's like the northern capital. And uh, yeah, we were one of two of the main basketball teams in the city. There was one rival, and so that was a pretty amazing environment because you know the arena, which maybe had I don't know eight to ten thousand people, um, Mm. maybe a little larger, but it was it was a really nice arena, was packed all the time. The fans were fanatical, to say the least. I mean, they had no shirts on, bodies painted, screaming, flares in the stands. It was very similar to that kind of traditional European soccer environment that you see on television, (laughs) yeah, in a very condensed basketball arena. People are smoking. Just, right.
0: It's just a whole
1: another. It's a whole they're another serving alcohol.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah, throwing things at you and the plays don't go right. So just a whole different interaction, you could say, with the fans than, than you're used to in U.S. sports.
0: But it sounds like now we're building, right, from high school to post-grad to college to playing pro right. and really prepared you for this next step.
1: So, let's, Right, right. So yeah, retired after a few years of, of basketball in Europe, and came back and, yeah, took, uh, took uh, yeah, three, four years off basketball. When I went, when I transitioned from playing professionally to, you know, to a, a different career, different job, it really, it just was tough to find the time to go and continue to play. And it went from being my whole life to now not being much of a contributor. And I was ready to kind of experience, you know, things without basketball. It was really kind of the truth. So it was more kind of a, a conscious step away from the game for some years. And, uh, how did you enough, decide
0: what you were going to do next?
1: Yeah. You know, I, that, that was, a, that was another, another difficult transition. I worked in many jobs. I, I came back to Los Angeles, um, with my girlfriend at the time and looked at a multitude of jobs. i had worked in everything over a 12 month period from managing a restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, this kind of like cool, uh, um, bar restaurant in Los Angeles called Laurel Hardware, which was you know, pretty fa- pretty fancy and, and hot spot. And I'd uh, well, never I worked that. in a restaurant before, but got a job there as the manager and kind of running the show there for some income. I had worked for um, a commercial real estate brokerage firm, a little private equity shop. I did some financial analyst job and pretty much it was kind of like getting as much experience as possible and re, you know, reentering the workforce. You know, I'd been on a different path playing basketball for a few years and, um, you know, so, so that transition was, you know, really reaching out to my networks, emailing as many people, you know, a lot of times, you know, I get, you know, a, a lot of questions about, yeah, how do you get back into, you know, the workforce after, you know, playing basketball, or maybe you're on a different path. Yeah, I probably went to 50 to 60 to 70 lunches and dinners and coffees over that time period. And that means I probably sent out over a couple hundred emails in the first place around my network. And I was using the Princeton network, and I was using the basketball network, and my Greek network, and whoever I had, families and friends, um, to try and you know just get out there, see what type of industries were out there, see what intrigued me, get some real work experience. Um, and to close oh. it up, I ended up settling on, um, at an investment, an RIA, uh, an investment advisor. And I've been here for over four years now. And we manage investment portfolios for high net worth individuals and then also uh, big institutional clients. And we'll manage like a pension plan or a health plan or a school endowment, um, any big pool of capital that we invest across all asset classes and and kind of manage that money. So I've been doing that for some time now and and really love it.
0: Um, I I think that's beautiful because... I mean, similar to you, I I did what you did in whatever season tried to play. And I remember hitting that wall of, I've been an athlete my whole life. I've defined myself through my athletics. What am I going to do next? And eventually I got to Nike through that questioning of what's going to make me happy. And I think this next generation particularly we're not, they're not getting the opportunity to go do internships because they're playing full time and you right. know, not doing summer jobs because they're playing club year round. So the, I love your 50 to 60 to 70 lunches or coffees. I mean, right, right. that's that a lot kind of, a of
1: time. Yeah. It is, it is. And I, I can remember very vividly my college teammate and I, Kareem Maddox, who uh, is actually on my 3x3 team. And he's a He's a podcast producer out of Brooklyn now. He was in LA with me at the time. He's from here, and I remember the coffee bean we went to on, on La Cienega <laughs> in Beverly and in West Hollywood every single day for for several hours, um, sending emails and reaching out to people. And it really was um, a diligent process that 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 we stuck to, and both kind of found you know careers we were you know intrigued by and that that we were really excited with, but learning those skills is a tough way. It's not, uh, it's not an easy thing and there's a lot of stumbling through, but yeah, that was definitely the process that, that, that proved successful for us.
0: And nobody's coming and knocking on your door saying here, come do this either. Right. That's the
1: thing, you know, like people I think are intrigued by that unique experience. I'm sure you saw that as well too. It's, you have a different perspective on life. Now you've traveled the world a little bit, maybe more cultured, but it's, it's not an easy transition into a new field, you know it's really not. you kind of need to carve that out yourself in certain careers, you know and being frank, certain careers aren't really um, responsive to that type of experience. you know I think some of the traditional investment banking routes or management consulting uh, where you have to have an internship by junior year and then you have to do you know get the job offer and join the join as an analyst in the same year as kind of the graduating class and those type of careers you know may not be an option for you right off the bat, uh, and so you just need to be aware of that um, and who will value your experience. you can always work your way back to any career you wanted be a school or a connection or another relative work experience but it was uh, it was a process trying to feel that out
0: yeah and let's kind of round this out we're already amazing yeah. to thirty minutes, but I want to talk right. about. <laughs>
1: i talking to you
0: all day but about your mindset, which, I mean, we've been touching on. But, you know, again, now you've stepped away from basketball and now this opportunity comes. Um, right. But, you know, is I guess maybe give us a little more context. Is there a coach or is this all self-motivated? How do you work yeah. yourself? You know, there's a lot of lessons in here as far as being we talk about being intrinsically driven in order to get to these bigger goals, whether it's playing in Greece or Italy or playing on the Olympic team, this has, this is, this can't be your mom or dad saying, Dan, I think this would be a great opportunity. Why don't you do this? This has to be something that comes from within, right?
1: Right. And I think to your point, I think there's always some stage where your drive needs to start coming from within. And I think, Uh, you know, I do think there's a correlation with the earlier that that happens for a a player in any sport, kind of the more success that they'll end up seeing. Uh, It's difficult for parents to uh, instill that in the child. I think that you can show the ropes. I think you can show the guidance, but until um, an athlete wants to really buy in for their own gain and their team success, that's, that's really the defining factor. And, um, high school, you know, and so that, that probably really kicked in for me, you know, some point, I, uh, maybe later in high school, very much so developed more at Exeter and then, and then even more so in college and now post is that, um, you know, there's no one pushing you to go work out anymore. Right. And for this mm-hmm. particularly, you know, to, to talk about three X three, I work, you know, full time hours at a job and need to find time now to work out. That puts me on a competitive level with other people training for the Olympics. And so. Uh, the sacrifices are real, and they come in the form of your social life, and they come in the form of things that you want to do, uh, but but no longer can. So my, my list of priorities is my job and training for the Olympics, and so you have to find a way to to get those hours in and train. And so it's in the morning, it's it's at your lunch break, it's after work, and it doesn't really leave much time, um, you know, to pursue some of the other things that you may be enjoying, you know, or, or do, but. But it's, you know, as we know, I think you get to a certain point where you've gotten enough success from these work ethics where you can kind of see uh, the payoff that can come or the opportunity that hand is great enough that's worth those type of sacrifices.
0: That's awesome. So what is the path, I mean, to 2020? How, what, just yeah. a quick overview. So of how I, you would now, Yeah, so
1: the 2020 Olympics. So there'll be four representatives uh, uh, of the USA team. Uh, at a high level, there's going to be eight men's and eight women's teams uh, representing from around the world, uh, pl- competing in this new event. It's a new event, and so I think for that reason, there's a, you know there's a cap on how many countries compete. Uh, so there's a the issue of USA qualifying, um, and then B, who will they'll send their four representatives? Currently, my teammates and I um, are the number one ranked team in the USA by a lot. Mm-hmm. And we're ranked six. We're ranked six in the world. Wow. And um, and yeah, and so. The team will be chosen. You know, it's, there's, there's a lot of things that can happen, but um, USA Basketball is going to send who they think the best four representatives are of the sport. There are certain regulations um, put in place by FIBA, who's a governing body, um, uh, protecting some of the players who are playing year round. Whereas, for example, two players have to come from your top 10 ranked 3x3 players in the country. And so that kind of keeps. Um, at least some of the NBA guys at bay because they'll never be able to be ranked in the top 10. So my teammates and I, there's six of us on a team, four of us travel to every tournament last year, for example, we finished ranked one through six in the USA because we had played more tournaments. We had been more successful and, and therefore accumulated more points. So, um, there's a pretty, a pretty decent shot here, <laughs> you know, at, yeah. at a couple of us, maybe four of us to go and represent the U S here in the Olympics. And so that's, you know it's tough to wrap your head around something that large, even as much success we've all had at the professional level. Because when you talk about representing your country and going ahead against other federations, it's it seems to be a whole other uh, can of worms that that is it, it, almost you know tough to even realize we have that opportunity, but we have to, and we're leaders, you know, in this race, and um, and we have to act that way. So. Last year was our first year of traveling. We probably went to 15 tournaments internationally throughout the summer to compete on behalf of the U.S. and our our team. And this year, we'll kind of have the same schedule outlaying soon here where uh, because the game was birthed internationally, that's where most of the competitions are in Europe and Asia and South America. And so far, there there are a few tournaments in the U.S. to really gain points. So that will pick up a lot this year. More people will be getting involved. There'll be some commercials, some big corporate sponsors getting into the space, and I think we'll really continue the growth of this game. Um, And yeah, and yeah, the note that the last thing I want to kind of get across is, like you said earlier, is this is a fun. I'm 30 now and still chasing, you know, still chasing hoop dreams, as you could say, but very specifically this Olympic opportunity and what this what this new sport kind of gave the world is uh, another way to you know compete and be your best self um and and compete for something great you know the nba like you said if you're not on strict time limits playing at a certain level of high school a certain level of college competing scoring then then you kind of get off that path and it seems like a very distant this sport is open to you know every pro-am player there is around and so um you you can kind of continue there's such a wealth of basketball talent in this world um, and only 60 guys get to go to the MBA a year, and so this really, really opens up the competition. I think to the greater, you know, uh, wealth of town around the world to uh, to start playing this new sport.
0: It's so exciting and and fun to see that. Well, I, you're the To me, the theme I keep hearing is the consistency of showing up. Right, like you keep yeah. showing up, and to travel internationally 15 times last year. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. that's a huge. Two three times a month.
0: That's a huge commitment, right? Like to right. talk about right. funny, being willing to put everything else on the sidelines, including relationships and, you know, any type of free time, right? To be able to do this is, it's not about, Ooh, I, I think that would be nice. This is an all in kind of deal. So you know,
1: exactly. Right. And yeah, that, that, that's, you hit the head on the nail there. <laughs> um, the nail on the head in that it, it really is the biggest factor I would say that, that I've deemed to, to the success here or to actually, uh fulfilling this Olympic dream is is the consistency. How do you find a way to get better every single day? Mm-hmm. And that's a tough thing throughout. There's it's so easy to say, oh, I have another commitment. I can't work out today. I'll do two tomorrow. You know, mm-hmm. I hear that all the time. I'll do a double workout tomorrow. Well guess what? That didn't make up today's workout because you could have worked out today and done a double workout tomorrow. And so the truth is the, the ultimate sacrifice to find a way to get in that gym every day, to get shots up, to get on the treadmill, to make sure your body's right. You know, at, our, at the age of 30, um, when you're, you know, near the top of your prime, maybe just entering, you know, physically the, the slope downward, it's even more important to keep your body right. There's stretching and yoga and diet and things that play such a major role in your, in your ability to even perform. Uh, without getting injured and, and keeping up with the standard of younger players and stuff. So the consistency is everything. And I would say you just, you can never make up today's workout tomorrow and, um, and, and, and yeah, and find a way to persevere through that.
0: It's awesome. Yeah. I remember hearing, or, uh, uh, Kobe on a podcast when he was in his prime, he talked about he ended up adding in a four a.m. workout because getting three workouts in a day just wasn't enough for him.
1: <laughs> like, uh, he's, you know, he's, uh, yeah, he's up there with, in my opinion, maybe only Michael Jordan and several other athletes, Serena Williams, you know, people that are, yeah. are true, you know, uh, goats up there, up there, you know, and they really did have the work ethic. You could see it in every interview, and every talk, and every moment. It just yeah. exuded... Uh, consistency and persistence and dedication to that. And that was there, was, there was nothing that could get in between him and that, right? Yeah. And, and that degree of training. And so it well, made uh, dividends.
0: On that yeah. note, we have to wrap it up. So I'd I yeah. like, like to end with this last statement, really, if you could finish this for us. We always like to to end with this one. The best athletes, because you're training with all these world-class athletes all the time and playing with and against them the best athletes I know do
1: this? The best athletes I know create structure and plans and stick to it. So the best athletes, it kind of goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about, but I'm a a firm believer in having that structure. So planning out your workouts, you know, a week in advance, a month in advance, however long you need, but there's got to be some type of schedule there um, to give you the best shot at staying consistent. I think that if your plan is just to go to the gym every day and get up you know, shots, there's things that get in the way of that. And you're not really um, preparing for what might impede your progress. Mm-hmm. And if getting in that practice is the most important thing, it needs to be structured, it needs to be set out. You need to have the game plan, you need to have the trainers or assistants or any help you can find, even if it's a buddy to go shoot with you know, or work on your skills with, to, to be there. And you need to be accountable and you need to show up every day.
0: Dan, I love that. That's a perfect yeah. way to end. Thank you so yeah. much. This
1: was yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thanks so much for having me. it was yeah. really a pleasure to chat and I hope it was valuable for... Absolutely. We're going to have
0: you on again as we get closer, as we get closer to Tokyo yeah. 2020 so that we can be talking, you know... Absolutely. We'll keep how, you updated
1: on the progress.
0: Awesome so parents okay. if you enjoyed this and know another sports parent who's trying to get better at supporting their teen athlete we would be so honored if you would go into itunes and rate and share this podcast our goal is to support parents in not only raising strong athletes but more importantly extraordinary people who are trying new things failing forward and getting up and doing it all over again let's do this
1: let's thank- do it baby
0: thank you